0: Chapter 3. THE APARTMENT Some sociologists find the structure of a house significant to the psychological well-being of an individual. Most houses have a basement, a ground floor, an upstairs and an attic, and each of these we are told symbolizes an aspect of the human personality, which must be free to move symbolically from one level to another. This choice is denied to the apartment dweller who lives on one level only. Furthermore, in the big East Coast cities, particularly New York, humans have been known to remain inside for days, weeks, months, and even years at a time without going outside. This is perhaps the first fact to understand about an apartment, which is much more self-contained and private than a house can ever be. Paradoxically, although it may be surrounded on all sides top and bottom by other apartments, the occupants of these dwellings in America get to see each other rarely if at all. Homeowners, on the other hand, always have some relationship with their next-door neighbors, even if it is unpleasant. This is because of the concept of private property in America. Each homeowner is protecting his own and his neighbor's economic interests by being cordial and watchful. Apartment dwellers have no such concern for each other, the unwritten law is, you do what you do and I do what I do. The only thing that can bring apartment dwellers together is mutual hatred of the landlord, in other words, the owner. If you have seen one of these apartments, you have seen them all. As you enter the front door, you find yourself in a hallway which links the various rooms with each other. In this apartment on Walnut Street in West Philadelphia, the layout went something like this. The largest room, called the living room, was found in the front facing onto the street. The rest of the apartment ran straight back, perpendicular to the front. Our living room opened onto a balcony on which we could sit in the warm weather and watch the three lanes of one-way traffic go by. This movement went on day and night. Walnut Street was the main artery that took traffic quickly from the heart of center city Philadelphia to the residential neighborhoods of the west. Since the living room was well set back from the street, you were unaware of the cars going by most of the time. The living room was comfortable and spacious. It had a couch, several comfortable chairs, bookcases, a grand piano, a Stromberg-Carlson radio, and tables with lamps and a coffee table for serving drinks. It was the room in which I listened to and made music, heard my favorite radio shows, played games with myself, read, felt safe and protected. Heading toward the back of the apartment, the first room you came to was a study which served as my bedroom and was directly opposite the front door to the apartment across the narrow hallway. This room was tiny, containing only a studio couch on which I slept, a radiator covered with a white metal case on which I could write like a desk, two closets with mirrors on the front and a small chest of drawers. There was also room for one small chair. The room had the feeling of a nest or cave. It was not even big enough to hold my childhood bed, a beautiful maple four-poster which I dearly loved and missed terribly when we first moved in. I was never happy in this room and spent as little time there as possible. The single window looked out across an alley at the brick wall of the apartment next door. Next to this little room of mine was the bathroom, which contained a toilet, sink and bathtub with the inevitable medicine chest over the sink and a tiled floor made up of small white hexagonals. This was one of my favorite rooms since what happened there was almost always of a pleasant nature. The hallway then took an interesting bend past a hall closet and ran straight back to the dining room where it ended. Before getting there, however, a room opened off it to the left, which was my parents' bedroom, often referred to as the master bedroom. This room contained most of the mysteries and wonders of the apartment. I would generally go in there on any pretext whatsoever to explore and discover what I could. In a way it was off limits, but my parents never seriously objected to my going in for a look as long as they weren't there. I don't remember ever walking into that bedroom when they were both there at the same time. The dining room was built around a single table which was reserved for dinners with company, as special guests or family members were called, since my mother, father and I ate all of our meals on a Formica top table in the kitchen, the back room of the apartment. This dining room table was very special to me. It was a massive wooden structure with a shiny top kept highly polished. Special pads protected the surface whenever work needed to be done on it. This table was the work center of the house, typing and writing, schoolwork, study and all special projects including sewing got done here. Three years after we moved into this apartment our first TV set appeared in the corner of the dining room, thus making it a new entertainment center. The kitchen was small. All of our food was prepared, served, and eaten in the same room. A great deal of reading was done here by me since I liked to read while I ate, only permitted if I was eating alone. On many occasions, I continued to sit alone with my book for hours after the meal. Attached to the kitchen was a back porch where clothes could be hung out, this in turn was connected to the back stairs that led down to the basement, a large low-ceiling dingy cell filled with junk where several occupants kept their washing machines, opening onto a narrow courtyard. The psychological structure of the apartment went this way for the seven-year-old Gary, living room, security, bedroom, dreams and terror bathroom, pleasure, parents' bedroom, wonder, dining room, work, kitchen, satisfaction. The front balcony made of concrete was the solid battlement of a castle looking out over the kingdom while the wooden back porch and stairs were the private passages leading through rough mazes either up to a rooftop lookout or down to the subterranean depths below. Here for the first time my parents were to leave me alone when they went out for the evening, Their psychology ran, why should we pay a babysitter when we can give the money to you and let you babysit yourself? Is this why I have always hated or at least been indifferent to money? Willy nilly I had to agree and after a somewhat glum farewell was on my own. The first thing I would do after they left was to run around the apartment in order to make sure that every closet door was closed. I was convinced for many years that witches lived in closets. These devilish creatures had to be shut in. In the same way that witches were the feminine object of fear in my fantasy life, so the wolf or werewolf was the masculine fear object. It is not difficult to trace the origin of the witch fear to a particularly nasty screen close-up in Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs of the Wicked Stepmother Witch herself. Going a bit further I think that the theme of the beautiful but treacherous stepmother disguising herself as an old woman or witch was to haunt my love life later on with its obsessive craving for cruel treatment from women. The sexual symbolism of the closet as womb or vagina is only too clear better to close the door on the whole subject than look it straight in the eye. From the moment they were gone for the evening I couldn't get the idea out of my mind that I was not alone. Locking the door and checking to see that the apartment was closed to the outside was of little consolation since although no one could possibly get into me it was equally true that no one or no thing could possibly get out either. Sometimes I would tune in to a favorite radio program. But this often backfired as I sat petrified with fear, but totally hooked, listening to a program like Inner Sanctum or Escape in which the abominable snowman or some other monster like the Yeti would be creeping close to the campfire where our trusty hero was dozing off. The sound effects in those days were vivid. I heard with horror the crunching of feet in the snow suggesting the creature's approach. I would get this creepy feeling in the back of my neck and whirl around to see if anything was behind me. In the fantasies of children it is not necessary for them to fight or grapple with the monster, but simply to catch a glimpse of it or let it know that they are aware of it in order for it to disappear. During these lonely hours, many expeditions were launched. These modest explorations were usually directed toward the bathroom or my parents' bedroom. Sometimes I searched in the dining room among private objects, documents and photos which were stored in a cupboard or showed old still films, kept rolled up in little metal cylinders by projecting them onto the wall through a hot old smelly camera. The medicine chest of the bathroom was always a treasure trove since it revealed certain secrets of my parents' physical ailments. My reading skills improved rapidly. Of particular interest to me was a wall safe that was hidden behind a picture in their bedroom. I used to spend hours trying to figure out the combination by turning the knob first in one direction and then in the other to pull off the greatest robbery of all time. I learned later that the safe had been used by my Uncle Max when he lived there and that my parents never knew the combination Uncle Max had left nothing inside. Being an only child resulted in devising games and playing them with myself. Taking a few shirt cardboards and some tape I could fashion with some shallow boxes a pinball machine. I could play games which involved poking holes in the cardboard and trying to shoot a marble inside. I would make up an imaginary opponent who was good, but as a rule I would generally beat him. One of my favorite toys was a submarine aircraft carrier combination. The wooden submarine had a hole in it into which you fitted a red torpedo and shoved it home onto a compressed spring. The aircraft carrier, also made of wood, was placed on the other side of the room. Its deck lay flat with various movable turrets, guns and airplanes on top, which could be freely arranged. Underneath the deck was a flexible metal strip that fitted into a slot and was sprung into action when a red button on the side of the ship was pushed. The object, of course, was to aim the submarine at the aircraft carrier by lying on your belly on the rug, after taking care to judge the distance exactly, to fire the torpedo at the ship and blow it up. Once released, the red torpedo streaked toward the red button. If it hit, deck, guns, planes and turrets would go flying into the air. Few countries have succeeded at war as well as those in which children from an early age play elaborate war games, in no country is this as true as in America. These simple games have since evolved from the era of the pinball machine into that of video games, in which a button is pushed and if your reflexes are quick enough the enemy explodes in a second. Hitting a moving object with a missile is something that every American child is trained to do, whether it is hitting a wide receiver in football or hitting a car with a stone or bottle. Hitting an object which is not moving is duck soup in comparison. At any rate, after sufficiently tiring myself out by fear or exploration I would finally get into bed. Here I was easy prey for any night stalking creature. Therefore, my only recourse was to stay awake until my parents got back. This I would accomplish by listening to the radio. My instructions from them, however, were explicit on one point and that was the hour of my bedtime. I was to get in bed by 9 o'clock at the latest and be asleep when they got home. So I would listen very quietly to the radio until I heard the sound of the downstairs door and their footsteps on the stairs and by the time the key turned in the lock a few seconds later I would be in my fetal position with the covers over my ears, radio turned off, seemingly asleep. This ruse, one that I felt worked for several years, gave me tremendous satisfaction. It was only much later that my mother casually informed me that she knew all the time that I was only pretending to be asleep whenever she bent over to kiss my head. She quite simply just put her hand on the radio, feeling the heat from its tube. She knew that it had just been turned off just a moment before. She therefore became my closest accomplice in my attempted deception of her and my father, since she didn't have the heart to hurt my feelings by blowing my cover. Besides, she got what she wanted. So did I. It was at the age of seven that my parents bought a piano, urged on by Aunt Clara, who felt I had musical talent. Whatever gave my mother's sister this idea, I will never know. But a teacher from the Curtis Institute, a Miss Howard, was quickly found and my lessons began. Looking back on a career of over 30 years as a professional musician, it is hard to believe how difficult that first year at the piano was. The spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak. My hands and fingers just wouldn't do as they were told. I have never found anything in life as frustrating and joyless as that first year at the piano. At the end of it I was in complete despair. I think if I could have seen some connection between music and what I was asked to do, things would have been easier. For hours I would listen to recordings of Rusty in Orchestraville with the orchestra led by Senior Pizzicato in which each instrument would sing words like I am the voice of the big bassoon, descending into the nether regions. The William Tell Overture, the Lone Ranger music, was another favorite, this was music. But what I was trying at the keyboard was not music, it was agony, it was pain, pure pain. My hands hurt, my wrists hurt, my fingers hurt. They were being called on to do things that they had never been designed for. And all of those sharps and flats. What had that to do with music or with real life for that matter? I would much rather have been out playing stickball or football in the schoolyard. Often I would practice after coming in from playing ball. This was really tough because the hand which had been pounded for two hours with a basketball or tennis ball or football, often in the freezing cold, now had to adjust its shape to the lines of minuets by Handel and Bach. The two just didn't go together. Later in life when I was giving concerts and playing a lot in bars I realized that the sports I had been playing with their concomitant shocks to the hands and fingers were putting a resistance into my muscles which made me approach the piano with claws rather than hands. The hand was either tense or else pounded into submission by a softball or hardball until it resembled a hunk of meat. In either case stretches of a seventh or octave were difficult not because the hand was too small but because it wouldn't or couldn't open. My hands today are of an average male size, but the stretch is one that can touch a twelfth and play an eleventh, quite respectable for a concert pianist. I did love sounding out certain intervals at the piano of which the open or perfect fifth in the bass was my favorite. My absolutely favorite piece in the book I used was the Indian war dance, in which the left hand beat out a rhythmic series of quarter note fifths composed of C and G while the right hand played an E flat, D and C from the C minor scale, The sound of this piece may be found in my first sonata for flute, clarinet, and piano, 1984, and in the second movement of my first symphony. I imagine that Miss Howard was quite a good musician herself, but her efforts to teach me the piano were of little use. With her Midwestern calm she patiently answered all of my probing questions designed to stimulate a conversation and get her attention away from what I was supposed to be doing at the piano. Scales were practiced in the most desultory fashion. The simple arrangements of the harmonious blacksmith and the Ave Maria, transcribed dully in all in the wrong keys, failed to turn me on. At this point some stroke of genius persuaded my parents to get rid of this teacher and seek out one of the most exciting but controversial figures on the Philadelphia musical scene. This man was a fantastic, good-looking pianist and composer named Damian Sorokin who could play almost anything from the piano literature by heart. He allowed his students to learn any piece that really excited them regardless of the difficulty involved. This simple method of his produced many recitalists and competition winners as well as a greater number of frustrated students of more ordinary metal. In addition, since he didn't bother to teach exercises, many of his students discovered later that the groundwork for their technique had been inadequately covered. Damien, however, felt that by practicing the great works of Chopin, Liszt, Rachmaninoff, and Beethoven that the fingers would encounter every pianistic difficulty they would ever be called on to face. If a student was really having problems a daily dose of Bach was prescribed as a cure-all. Shortly before Damien's emergence on the scene I had been going through a difficult time, just before my eighth birthday. Each night, just before dropping off to sleep, I would pull myself back into consciousness with the acute feeling that if I went to sleep I would die. For two weeks I could not get to sleep no matter how hard I tried. Hanging between consciousness and unconsciousness, somewhere between life and death, I only fell asleep after what seemed hours of torture. No doubt this was something I inflicted on myself but to me, at the time, it came from a place so deep inside me that I had no idea how to deal with it. Finally, I did descend into my own underworld looking to confront what it was that was so severely disturbing me. In that encounter with the nameless beast within me, without understanding it or giving it a name, without even seeing its face or hearing its voice, meeting it only in a calm void suspended between light and dark, I was finally granted the grace of sleep again. I realized consciously that it was only the thought of not being able to go to sleep which could prevent me from falling asleep after that. I realized that many of my natural functions proceeded beautifully by themselves, but that as soon as I started to think about them or feel fear, they could no longer happen. I like to think of the cartoon in which the mouse, chased by the cat, runs on air between two buildings, the cat does the same, but midway across he makes the mistake of looking down and immediately falls. I learned that many things proceeded better when I didn't use his mind, but here the problems of criticism, analysis, and self-evaluation came to the fore. It was right around the same time that I and my closest friend, Tom, went up the back stairs of the apartment, pushed open the heavy metal door to the roof and went out on it. For stories up we cautiously neared the edge, which had no railing, and peered over. One look was enough for me. I immediately pulled back, terrified, while Tom calmly stood and surveyed the alley below. In that moment I felt the same fear of death that had haunted me since the ether mask had been placed over my face by the doctor years before. This fear of falling would be transformed in the future into many different forms, but most often would manifest as fear of failure or success. Chapter 4 The Young Pianist The night that Damien Sorokin came to visit, I was allowed to meet him briefly and to play a few notes for him on the piano. I was then told to go to bed. Once in my room I pressed my ear against the bedroom wall, as I had often done before, to hear what was going on in the adjacent living room. I couldn't hear everything that was being said, but got the distinct idea that if my parents could afford Sorokin's price, I would be allowed to study with this formidable musician. I had believed in God for a few years, often speaking to him in a conversational internal monologue. Rarely had I ever prayed or asked for anything, but in this case, I found myself asking for lessons before I even realized what I was doing. The next morning I was told that Sorokin would teach me, but at a lower price than he usually charged. I was strictly instructed by my parents how to hand Sorokin the money at each lesson so that no one could see the denomination of the bill. Weekly lessons were held at Sorokin's studio in town after school. Every Wednesday, I would get on the 42 trolley and ride down Spruce Street past the University of Pennsylvania, of which my father was an alumnus and which I would also would graduate from over 33rd Street to Chestnut and via the Chestnut Street Bridge into town. Getting off at 18th Street I was exhilarated by the noise, the people, the action of downtown Philadelphia. Sometimes I quickly stopped off to buy a candy bar or browse around for a few minutes in some of the interesting shops I saw. When asked for help by a salesgirl or the owner I always replied no, thanks. I'm just looking. I would then climb the stairs to Sorokin's Studio, behind the red door at the northeast corner of 18th and Sansom. Usually when I arrived the lessons were in full swing. Sorokin had many students and used to schedule them without a break throughout the afternoon. This held out tremendous benefits for me because sitting on that couch in the same small room, waiting my turn, I would get to hear other students play and, more important, watch Sorokin teach them. I quickly picked up on the electric enthusiasm for piano playing which filled the studio. Sorokin would sit at the Little Lester spinet with the student seated to his left at the Steinway Grand. For solo pieces Sorokin slide his chair over a bit to sit next to the student, pencil in hand, marking down every finger he wanted used over the printed notes. When accompanying your playing of the solo part of a concerto, he would play the orchestra part on the spinet. The exciting sound he generated gave a terrific psychological impetus to your solo piano part. Actually he could outplay you, drown out your playing on the Steinway Grand, by his simultaneous performance on the ridiculously small spinet. Humming, singing, beating time, shouting, he was there to teach you what and how to play, to tell funny stories, to instruct, cajole and intimidate you concerning every aspect of the music, including its historical background, often in the most positive ways. His teaching did have a critical side though, He would speak of fingers being schwach and would say that these weak fingers were playing all wrong notes, that your playing was black with mistakes. Rarely, if ever, would he praise you. Again and again he would turn to his little piano and play the same passage, which you had been struggling with, so easily, with so much grace, charm and beauty that you felt momentarily like giving up. But the inspirational value of his playing for me far outstripped any unfavorable comparisons. It had the effect of making me want to practice harder, if there was only a chance that someday I could play half that well. The early pieces given to me were just a warm-up for the onslaught on the classical and romantic literature which was expected of each student. The self of C.P. Bach was difficult, but I got through it. After that came La Valanche, Papillon's, not Schumann's, and an easy piece by Edward McDowell, The second prelude from the well-tempered clavier, and later the fugue, attracted my interest but didn't really light a fire under me. The Schirmer editions, the ones with the yellow covers, were the standard versions used except when a piece was published by Presser or Elkin Vogel. On Chestnut Street, just around the corner from the studio, was the immense building of the former publisher and behind it, on Sansom, the small store of the latter. Seeing all of that sheet music and hearing bits of conversation between salespeople and customers was part of my early musical education, too, and contributed significantly to a growing realization of how big the musical world really was. Sorokin would always give his students a choice of which of several pieces they wanted to learn. Often they had already heard other students struggling with them while sitting on the couch waiting for their own lesson. But although they knew the pianistic perils ahead many of them were willing to take a chance on the harder works which were so surpassingly brilliant and overpoweringly beautiful. My preferences were very strong from the beginning, my taste eschewed the modern, baroque and classical pieces in favor of the romantic ones. It was only Chopin, Liszt, Brahms and Rachmaninoff which moved me. As these were Sorokin's favorites also, both he and I were able to share a mutual passion for the richness and the frenzy, the tremendous amount of emotion, that one could pour into these romantic blockbusters. The Rondo Capriccioso of Mendelssohn first caught my ear. It became the first large-scale work which I tackled. The opening, written in the four sharps of E major, which also introduced me to double sharps, was difficult to read, but the melodic opening of the piece and its slow tempo gave me time to gather confidence and to let the music sing. The quick section which followed was in E minor, one sharp easier to read but hell to play. If Felix Mendelssohn knew one thing, that was speed. The tempo of the 16th notes in this piece was blinding. Of course my fingers were unable and unwilling to play it. However, I showed a dogged persistence and refused to give up on such a piece once I had started it. At first I had resented practicing for Miss Howard, the stickball made it doubly difficult, but now I looked forward to my work at the piano because it meant I could be alone with these fantastic pieces. Although playing was always a struggle for my fingers, I slowly began to catch fire and, despite the fact that my renditions were black with mistakes, my enthusiasm and emotional verb usually enabled me to finish them. Every piece learned for Sorokin had to be memorized. For me this was no problem at all. The part of the rondo Capriccioso that really turned me on was the ending, which was a big passage in alternating left and right hand hammering octaves. Although my hands were of average size, my stretch at that time was a bit over an octave, which enabled me to play this passage from the Mendelssohn piece fairly easily and also revealed from the very outset the big, exciting sound that could come out of the piano. When Sorokin first played the passage for me it was as if the heavens had opened up. I sat there in stunned silence, listening. Success with this piece lead to the revolutionary etude of Chopin a piece which other teachers would never have given a student until years of study had passed. But Sorokin regularly assigned this during the early years if the hand was large enough for the octaves. His reason was quite simple. Of all the works in the piano literature this piece best developed the left hand, for which it was primarily written, taking you through breathlessly difficult leaps, twistings and turnings and, since it never stopped, through a building up of stamina that no other work quite approached. Chopin supposedly wrote it down in a frenzy after hearing of the revolution in Poland, throwing himself down on the keys he played it right off at one go. He was 21 years old at the time. The piece had that dynamic and spontaneous feeling which I loved so much in romantic music. It was impulsive and daring, and it was also horribly difficult. The real trick in learning these titanic pieces in the early years lay entirely in knowing how to practice them. In this Sorokin was the master. Like a parent carefully cutting up meat into bits convenient for a small child to eat, each composition to be studied was cleverly served up by him into many short sections, each one to be practiced ten times a day. One week of using this method accomplished more than playing the piece through many times from beginning to end for a year would have done. In the following weeks the shorter sections were joined together into longer ones until you knew the whole thing. The method confronted you with your note mistakes as well as your technical shortcomings, forcing you to surmount them. Furthermore, you were admonished to practice slowly, very slowly. This not only inculcated patience into students, but also gave them the chance to really hear each individual note, as well as allowing each finger to strengthen itself. Of course, after practice of this sort, even a student possessing an unexceptional memory was likely to know a piece off by heart within a month or two. The only problem lay in having the discipline at home to do this kind of slow practice in sections and to use the fingers which Siropin had marked into the score. The time at which I practiced was now standardized by my mother, strictly enforced by the little Ben Westclock's clock which stood guard stubbly on the music stand returning home for lunch from school which was only a block away, allowed me to eat my lunch while reading from 12.10 until 12.30, then to practice 40 minutes by the clock and finally to get back to school by 1.15 for the first bell. The second 14-minute practice period was at first scheduled in the late afternoon when I would come home from playing ball in the schoolyard. However, this after-school time was so terribly demanding physically that I finally decided to do my piano study instead after dinner. An hour and 20 minutes a day, then, was my unfailing routine at the piano for the first few years, later increasing to two and sometimes three hours a day if my studies permitted it. It was always made clear to me that the schoolwork came first and the piano second since my academic success and ensuing professional career in medicine had become a foregone conclusion by the time I entered college. The B-flat minor scherzo of Chopin, the preludes in C-sharp minor and G-minor of Rachmaninoff and the D-flat etude of Liszt followed each other in short order. It seemed that I only wanted to play the most demanding pieces. Consequently, playing was exceptionally difficult for me. To make it easier for all of his students Sorokin used a method of fingering that yielded dividends in the Romantic literature. He developed a hand in which the strong fingers, the thumb, pointer and middle fingers, called first, second and third fingers by the pianist, came to do all the work. Sorokin reasoned that since these were the best fingers they should be used as much as possible. Unfortunately, were students to attempt Bach, other Baroque composers, or Mozart and Beethoven sonatas using this approach, they would quickly discover the necessity of strong fourth and fifth fingers. Since these latter two fingers are weaker in most hands, primarily due to their interdependence, lack of free movement and, in the case of the fifth finger, its size, the responsibility of the teacher to develop them is vital to the playing of classical and Baroque music in which quick passage work involving all the fingers' figures prominently. The playing of Bach pubes depends on the strength of the outside weak fingers, as does the music of Schubert, in which melody and bass are played by the little and ring fingers with the strong inside fingers providing the accompaniment. This was perhaps the most serious fault in Sorokin's piano method, a truly fatal flaw which, unknown to me at the time, was to require years of work later at the piano to correct. But I was blithely ignorant of such details while plowing my way through the Romantic literature. The A-flat Polonaise of Chopin, the operatic transcriptions of Liszt, the Appassionata of Beethoven all fell before a vigorous onslaught. At the tender age of 11 I was ready for the Philadelphia Orchestra Young Pianists Competition which carried with it the promise of a performance of the Audition Concerto selected by the student and teacher. Sorokin and I picked the list Hungarian Fantasy, which was learned over a period of three months. The pressure on me was huge because there was a hint around the household that, if I won, there might be a chance of my parents allowing me to pursue a career in music. At the finale of the competition I saw that there was only one real threatening competitor, a little blonde, blue-eyed daughter of a Philadelphia orchestra violinist. I knew that she was good and that she had breathed nothing but the pure atmosphere of music since she was born. My performance of the fantasy, with Sorokin accompanying, went well but her appearance, the tiny figure with legs dangling from the piano bench, caused a sensation. Her playing of the greed was flawless, as natural and mindless as the breath of a spring day. When the announcement of her inevitable triumph was published in the Evening Bulletin, no one was at all surprised. A letter was sent to me which praised my playing but suggested that perhaps the list piece was too difficult. I was encouraged to enter the competition again the following year. This defeat, for such it was, was devastating for me. The following year, I auditioned for the Select Curtis Institute, for which only a small handful of musicians from around the world was chosen from hundreds of applicants. I was rebuffed again. At this point, although nothing had been said at home, it was clear that the door leading to a career in music had been closed to me. From this time forth no serious consideration of a concert pianist's career could be given by my parents. But just at this time fate intervened in a way that paradoxically guaranteed me work, recognition and a great deal of joy in music. My cousin Danny had a dance band that needed a piano player. It had some of the best musicians in the neighborhood in it. Although I was only 12, they gave me a tryout which I passed with flying colors. I could read practically anything they put in front of me and what I couldn't I sat at home with for hours, deciding cymbals, and learning to play them. As I made a bit of money, I invested it in lessons from some of the better pop and jazz pianists in Philadelphia like Bernie Lowe, Lenny Payton, and later Dennis Sandel. Within a few years, I was able to play most of the pop and jazz standards by heart. Pop music was something that I instinctively understood. My ear was really not that good, but again, fate took a hand when one day at summer camp, my father asked me to accompany some songs without the music. I was reluctant, but tried it. Before long, I could pick out melodies while finding the right chords on the spot. I soon noticed that the same patterns of chords popped up over and over again in these pieces. Certain of these harmonic changes could be used to accompany almost any music, pop or classical. Yet once more was my musical life accidentally touched, this time by the leaves of a poison sumac plant. While taking a day off as a waiter at camp my cousin Noah and I went skinny dipping, which necessitated walking repeatedly past a bush which gently brushed against us. The following day we both started to itch all over. Finally my entire body became one mass of weeping angry clumps of blisters. It was necessary to take me to the infirmary and there, with a soaring temperature and almost delirious with the itching pain, my body suffered acutely for the first time since the bot with polio. Night, unable to sleep, and half crazy with the burning swellings I turned on the radio next to my bed at some time after midnight and managed to get a station out of Chicago that presented an American Airlines-sponsored classical music show. Strangely enough, up to this point in my life, although I had played the piano for years, attempting everything from Bach to Gershwin, I never really had regarded this piano playing as having much to do with making music. I hadn't really heard much good classical music and what I had heard hadn't made a terrific impression on me, either. Maybe this was because my real concern was with the energetic pounding out of loud and exciting pieces. But through the crackle of static and the fading in and out of this radio program came a sound unlike any I had ever heard. When I heard it I suddenly became relaxed. Soon I felt no pain. It was a piece that began with the sounds of a bassoon and low strings and slowly developed into a march that blindly staggered along. The momentum of the music, the intense feeling, the gorgeous instrumentation, swept over me like a healing hand. It seemed hours later when the piece finally ended with a beautiful trumpet melody. The announcer informed me that I had been listening to the Tchaikovsky Symphony No. 5 in E minor. I slept blissfully that night and recovered quickly with the help of cornstarch baths and tubs of calamine lotion, but when I traveled back to Philadelphia at the end of that summer I carried with me something that would change the course of my life—a great love of orchestral music. Yet it was a treasure to be carried in secret silence within me. It was an experience of which I never spoke. I quietly set about buying a few primitive recordings of Wagner just then being released on cheap 45s that often ended right in the middle of the piece. Also I found a few boxed sets of 45s, including the fantastic Tchaikovsky 5th, Beethoven's 3rd, 5th and 7th symphonies, and the Schubert unfinished. My parents volunteered some discount and book club records, badly recorded, woefully played and conducted. This did not to matter at all to me. I was always listening to something behind the performance and beyond it. It was as if I could hear how the music should be done. In a way it was like the struggle involved to hear that original Tchaikovsky symphony, through the pain, through the static, the bad radio, the thousand miles of air, in the same way that I had to listen to my own playing through the fingers that constantly refused to carry out their commands. Somehow in the case of Tchaikovsky, Beethoven, and Schubert, I had become so totally one with their suffering that in hearing their music I was able to achieve an uncanny total identification with it. This struggle, this suffering, was at once my way into music and also the obstacle that I had to overcome in my playing and interpretive attitudes. The tension in my body was extreme. My hands often refused to work as much out of self-inflicted tortures as out of their own inherent deficiencies. My work had become self-defeating. I was always setting up barriers to be overcome even when they weren't there. I was beginning to develop as an intense individual but not one capable of much happiness, which in fact I despised. It was only in further striving and suffering that I could find solace. Yet within me was the capacity for profound relaxation. It was my personal tragedy that I was only able to begin to find it years and years later when my unconscious drive and energy, my repeated mindless batterings against the endless barriers which I encountered, met a final unconquerable obstacle and when, in total bewilderment and breakdown, I was set free to accept, to allow to enter me all the peace and joy and harmony which the universe has to offer any human being who asks for it.